Folks, make sure you have open before you there the passage we read from this morning, Genesis chapter 17 on page 16. We'll we'll certainly spend the early part of our thinking together in that passage, although we'll move on from there also. Have it open before you and let's pray. Father God, we have been thinking a lot this morning of how you move before us and how you offer us your grace. Help us this morning as we think about about this and about baptism to understand more fully that we we might celebrate more wholly uh, your goodness and your kindness to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We have baptized two wee fellas here this morning, and that's been great. I have three more scheduled in between now and Christmas. So that's something to look forward to as well. So from, you know, and if you look back over the last couple of years, you'll, you'll probably remember that we've baptized quite a number of children and a few adults too. So from being a church that wasn't very much in the, the baptizing sort of sphere, we've become a, a congregation who, who's doing a lot of this, uh, baptizing a lot of children and some grown-ups too. I've been wondering for some time about how well we understand what we're doing. It seems to me that to be doing something as often uh, as we're doing it and not to be sure about what we're doing um, wouldn't be very wise. So I thought it might be good to try and take just two or three weeks and think together about some of the main uh, issues surrounding baptism. And I'm going to try and answer uh, three questions for you in the next three weeks. What's the biblical basis for baptism? What does baptism mean? And what place does baptism play in a a church like this? So, we'll begin this morning and we'll think together about the biblical basis for baptism. If you've been around here for a while, you'll know that I don't normally preach like this. I don't normally choose a a theological topic and, and preach on it. It's not something I do very often, but I thought this would be very well worthwhile to do it. It would give us all a greater appreciation of our baptism if we have been baptized, and also clearer thinking about baptism if if we have not yet been baptized. One thing to be clear about baptism is it's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. So if you went looking for it anywhere in those first 39 books of the Bible, you wouldn't see it. Um... Baptism first comes to our attention in the New Testament. Having said that, we can't understand baptism without looking at at foundations that are laid for it in the Old Testament. So that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to begin by going right back to the beginning of the family of God, right back to Abraham, and in particular, uh, we'll come in a moment to Genesis 17. If you know the the broad sweep of the biblical narrative, you'll know that the first 11 chapters of Genesis tell a particular part of the story. They tell of how God created the world so that human beings could know him and know his love. But they tell also very quickly of how human beings wandered away from that ideal, how the relationship between God and and his people uh, was stretched and broken And we discover in the end that that God's heart breaks. God is is waiting for a way in which he can be back with his people. 
In this fallen world, God was looking for someone whom he could trust and someone who would trust him. And he found Abraham. And he approached Abraham totally out of the blue. Just by sheer grace, he chose Abraham. God didn't owe anything to him. He just loved him. And that was all. And Abraham responded to this love of God. So in Genesis chapter 11 and the following chapters, the story begins to change and a new storyline takes shape. Abraham moves house because he has a sense that God is calling him to. He follows God's call and he hears God's promises. And God promises that he's going to use Abraham to, to start a whole new thing. To, to build up a whole new nation of people who would be God's own people. But there's a problem. When Abraham first hears that promise, he, he's 99 years old. So in chapter 17, God takes a decisive step. He approaches Abraham. He reminds Abraham that he is God Almighty and that nothing is too hard for him. And then he makes a covenant or an agreement with Abraham. Abraham, for his part, was to walk before God with integrity. And God, for his part, was to make Abraham into a great nation and give his descendants a very special place to live. And we see the content of the the agreement that God makes with Abraham in Genesis 17. Look at verse 4. As for me, this is my covenant with you. You'll be the father of many nations. Look down to verse 7. I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for many generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now this is, this is incredible stuff that God's saying, particularly when we remember that it's to a 99-year-old who doesn't have any children. You could have... You, you could have accepted, you could have agreed with Abraham if he had doubted God's promises at this point. So God decided to give Abraham a physical mark, something to assure him that he really did belong and that God really was going to keep these promises, no matter how unlikely they seemed. So God told Abraham to circumcise himself and all the males of his household. Look at verse 11. You're to undergo circumcision... And it is to be a sign of this covenant between me and you. Historians of the period tell us that actually there was nothing very unusual about circumcision. The, the surrounding tribes, uh, which, which would have been around in Canaan in those days, they would have practiced it too, mostly for health reasons. But God takes this very ordinary thing and, and he makes it a, a permanent mark for Abraham of the reality of this covenant. And we read here that Abraham accepts it. He circumcises himself and Isaac when he was finally born and all the males of his household. So this becomes the non-negotiable badge of identity for the newly constituted family of God. We're told in verse 14, any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh, will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. 
So let's take a step back from all of that because that seems very hard for us to get our heads around. Very hard to be sure if that has any bearing on us at all. Folks, it seems to me that the important thing to say right here is that the pattern of how God saves people is established as far back as this interaction with Abraham. Our covenant-taking God steps towards us. He takes the initiative. He approaches Abraham in sheer grace. Abraham simply responds. We're told in verse 5, sorry, chapter 15, verse 6, that Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. The grace of God met by the faith of Abraham. That's how Abraham was made right with God. Folks, the reason this is interesting for us and important for us is that that's exactly how we are made right with God. God's grace as we respond to it. There is no other way, and there never has been. Michael Green puts it like this. Do not believe those who tell you there was one way of salvation in the Old Testament days by keeping the law, and that God has now changed his mind and decided that faith would be a better idea. Men and women were saved in the Old Testament in just the same way as they were in the New Testament, by the sheer undeserved generosity of God to which they respond in adoring trust. That's how it's always been with God, and that's how it always will be. So that's how God's covenant with Abram worked. God reached out, Abram responded, and circumcision was a tangible proof of the validity of this covenant. I want you to notice one more thing about circumcision. There's no magic here. For a person to be circumcised doesn't make a person right with God. You see, Jacob's brother Esau was circumcised. Ishmael was circumcised. But as far as we can tell, it did none of them any good. Because their hearts weren't right with God. There was no inner reality to to match the outward mark. Folks, maybe this is beginning to, to press some buttons for you as you think about baptism. All very interesting, you, you might say, Christoph, but this Jewish circumcision, in the end, what does it have to say about Christian baptism? Well, to show you that this is relevant for Christians, I want you to flick with me to that second passage we read, Galatians 3. It's on page 1170. In this letter, Paul is writing to a bunch of Christians who seem to think that doing good things, that keeping the law, especially keeping the Old Testament law, would somehow bring them to God. And and Paul makes the same point there that we've been making so far here today. No, keeping the law never made you right with God. It didn't do it then, and it won't do it now. So in the last few verses of chapter 3, Paul reassures the Galatians that they're all children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 29, he says, You're Abraham's seed 
and heirs according to the promise. So Paul's saying that those who have faith in God stand in continuity with Abraham. They are, are the family of God. This is what it means to be a descendant of Abraham and to be a part of the family of God. Folks, if it's true that Christians are Abraham's descendants in this way, then we have some important lessons to learn from the Old Testament account of Abraham. Firstly, it's clear that the Christian life is a response in faith to to God's initiative. It comes in sheer grace to us. It's nothing that we do. Second, it tells me that God generously gives a physical mark of belonging to seal this unseen contract, this unseen covenant that we have between his undeserved love and our wobbly faith. Baptism is the mark of initiation in the new covenant, just as circumcision was in the old. That's why Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, 26, you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, for all of you were baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there's a new community being formed here. No longer the physically circumcised, but those who are baptized into Jesus Christ. Folks, if we take seriously the Genesis story and the strong commands there to circumcise all in the household, whatever age they are, and let's face it, the the young Jewish boys were baptized at eight years old, so they had not much idea of what was going on, then it would seem to me that there's maybe the beginnings of a case there for baptizing children of believing parents. We're not going to deal with that this morning. I'll let you stew in your ideas about that for another week or two. But we will come to to think about that a little bit later on. When we see that, that baptism is the new covenant fulfillment of Old Testament circumcision, then we'd want to say that just like there's no magic with circumcision, so there's no magic with baptism either. If I baptize a child or a parent or an adult of any sort here before you, and they don't respond to the gracious, loving initiative of God, then they no more experience God's salvation than than one of those nominal Jews in the past who was circumcised but who had no reality of God's presence in their lives. Baptism is only valid when the external action meets a true internal response. Folks, we've begun to build a little bit of a foundation for how we can think about baptism, but we still haven't come at all to baptism itself as we we move through the biblical narrative. If you... If you used a a Bible search software and used the word baptism and and did a search on it, you'd find that it's not mentioned at all in the Old Testament. As soon as the New Testament starts, bang, baptism's all over the place. 
And it's particularly associated with one guy to such an extent that he gets a nickname, the Baptist, the baptizer. Now, it's, it's important to realize John the Baptist, he wasn't given that name to demonstrate which denomination he belonged to, to distinguish him from Pete the Presbyterian, Mary the Methodist, and Brethren Billy. John was called the Baptist because he baptized an awful lot of people. We're told in Mark chapter 1 that he baptized in the desert region. We're told that the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. He baptized, we can only guess, thousands of people standing up to his waist in, in the Jordan River. What was going on there? There hadn't been any baptism before mentioned in the Bible, and all of a sudden this guy arrives and, and baptism's all over the place. Well, folks, a very dramatic thing was going on there. Because baptism was only ever used in the Jewish community at one moment. It's when a Gentile, an outsider, a sinning pagan Gentile dog had to be washed clean to be allowed to enter into the people of God. They had to, be, they had to go through this elaborate baptizing ritual. So what John's doing here is, is incredibly provocative because he's treating the people of God themselves as pagans. He's saying, folks, forget about Gentiles. You're the ones whose lives are full of sin. You're the ones who have offended God. You're the ones who are, who are far from God's acceptance. If you want to be made right with God, you need to be washed. Come to me in the river and I'll wash you. A baptism of repentance, it was called. Folks, every baptism must have an understanding of this element in it. No person here or in any other church or any other community can be made right with God without repentance and without the, the washing of God's forgiveness. So that's one thing that we learn from John's baptism, the need for repentance and forgiveness. I don't know about you folks, but have you ever thought it was strange that Jesus offered himself for baptism? When you, when you think about what we just thought about, of what John was actually doing, then it becomes doubly strange. If John's baptism is about sinful, fallen people recognizing that they needed to be washed clean to be made right with God, then what's Jesus doing? Jesus doesn't sin. He doesn't need to be forgiven. He doesn't need to be made right with God. Why does he enter in and, and come to John and say, John, please baptize me? Why does he do that? Well, if we're familiar with Jesus' ministry and with his reason for coming into the world, then, then the answer actually stares us in the face. If Jesus is really coming to die on the cross for the sins of the world, if he's coming to identify with us in our sinfulness, in our rebellion against God, then he must identify fully with us. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. 
That's what he was doing that day when he met John in the Jordan River and allowed John to baptize him. Michael Green calls it a dummy run for Calvary. Here's Jesus who's done no sin and he identifies himself with sinful men and women. He's giving us an early glimpse now of what he'll do in in three years' time when he goes to a cross. He identifies with us in our sinfulness. Folks, that's exactly how Jesus saw his baptism. I'd love you to turn with me. One last passage, Mark chapter 10 on page 1015. We don't read of Jesus ever baptizing anybody. We don't read of him preaching about baptism. But when he does talk about baptism, he says something remarkable. This passage is in the context where James and John, two brothers, come to Jesus and say, Jesus, can we sit with you at your right hand in heaven? Can we be your right hand men? Can we be the ones most of all identified with you? We're your guys. Can we be your your guys? Look at verse 38. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking for. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Fellas, if you want to fully identify with me, you must enter fully into the cost of following me. The cross, that's my baptism. So this moment where Jesus identifies with sinful men and women in the River Jordan only gives us a glimpse of the the real moment of his baptism. That moment when he will go down to death but then rise to life. Folks, we're out of time for this morning. What we've done is we've gone very, very quickly through pretty much everything that the Bible teaches about baptism until the time when early Christians started to do it for the whole community, when they baptized adults and children together, when everyone who was coming into the family of God was was welcomed in this way with the waters of baptism. Are you beginning to see a glimpse, at least of some of the glory of what it is that we celebrate here on an ongoing basis. This, this baptism, it's a sign of God's incredible grace to us. He comes to us before we can do anything. That's why baptizing, baptizing babies is okay. We're not waiting for them to do anything. God's grace goes before and works in their lives. We've seen here of John's baptism, how he he reminded us of of our need of forgiveness. We've seen in Jesus' baptism how he identifies with our sin that he might save us. Folks, every time we baptize a, a baby or an adult, these things are before us. Let's never ever see it as a, a hollow rite or a dead tradition. Let's recognize instead God's wonderful grace to us in in baptism. Let's pray together.
Father God, we, we know that we uh, often have a capacity for, for letting the true life that you give us drain away from us. The wonderful things that you give us, uh, such as baptism, we allow them to come, become dead to us or, or hollow. Lord, we pray that today some of these realities would, would come home to us. Lord, let us see your grace in all of this. Lord, that this isn't about what we do, but it's all about what you do. This isn't about us saving ourselves, but it's about you saving us and us remembering it and celebrating it and making it central for us. Lord, we pray for, for each one of us here that we would have a, a growing sense of what it is to be saved by Jesus Christ, what it is to be baptized men and women, and Lord, we pray for our young people too and our children that they will, they will come into the wonder of a full understanding of all this too. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.